1872, the United States Supreme Court denied Mrs. Myra Bradwell, who had apprenticed, passed the bar exam, and had support from legal professionals, the right to practice law. Their decision quoted the Supreme Court of Illinois' opinion that allowing women to be attorneys was never contemplated. A lot has changed in the legal profession since 1872, but there is always room for improvement. From the Florida Bar's Henry Latimer Center for Professionalism, this is never contemplated. Hi, I'm Heddle Desai, and I'm your hostess for this brand new podcast, Never Contemplated. Before we get to our guest of honor, let me share with you how this podcast came about. At an annual meeting of the Florida Bar's Standing Committee on Professionalism, more affectionately known as SCOPE, some of the members, who are also members of the judiciary and are also female, were exchanging anecdotes of, I'll say, colorful comments and situations that had happened in their courtrooms. You know the obligatory mistaken for the court reporter stories, but they also refer to stories of being called lady judge or miss instead of just judge or your honor. The conversation with the committee members reminded me of a podcast I had heard called Justice Interrupted. That podcast discussed an empirical study done by two researchers from Northwestern Law School that studied oral arguments from 1990, 2002, and 2015. The study looked at oral argument transcripts from the U.S. Supreme Court and studied the effects of gender ideology and seniority on the frequency of interruptions of the justices. The study had many interesting findings, but what I remembered was even in 2015, when there were three female justices, 32% of the interruptions were of the female justices, which meant that each female justice was interrupted on average three times more than her male counterpart. It is clear that the practice of law has made great strides since Myra Bradwell tried to practice law in 1872. In the United States, 60% of attorneys are women. However, the numbers are much lower for the percent of female equity partners, general counsels of corporations, and government agency heads. In Florida, we had our first female attorney admitted in 1898 but the judiciary did not catch up until 75 years later in 1973. We had our first county court judge, Susan Black, who also was our first circuit court judge in 1975. The first permanent appellate court judge was Judge Ann Booth at the first DCA, and she was appointed in 1978 and continued to serve until I was a law clerk there. Rosemary Barquette, one of my professional idols, was the first female Florida Supreme Court member, and she was appointed in 1985. She became the first female chief judge for the Florida Supreme Court in 1992. Today, roughly 42 to 43% of the Florida bench is made up of female judges. This includes the circuit court, county court, and appellate court judges. And so we thought it would be interesting to talk to members of the judiciary about their journeys to becoming judges and their challenges on the bench and sometimes off the bench. And maybe we could get some practical professionalism advice as a bonus.
Our first guest on the Never Contemplated podcast is Judge Rachel Nordby. Judge Nordby is currently one of the newest judges on the Florida First District Court of Appeal. Judge Nordby got her bachelor's degree from the University of Florida and her JD from the Florida University College of Law, where she served as editor-in-chief of Law Review. Before being appointed by Governor DeSantis in October 2019 uh, to the first DCA, Judge Norby was a partner at Schutz and Bowen, and prior to that, she was the Senior Deputy Solicitor General for the Florida Attorney General. Uh, Judge Norby, welcome. Before we get started in, um, in our interview, I wanted to tell you that the last major public event that I attended with more than 10 people... <laughs> was your swearing-in ceremony, which was, I think, in early March. Um, how has it been adjusting to COVID life, and is it everything that you dreamed of being a new judge <laughs> in, in the time of COVID? Gosh, well, first, let me uh, thank you for inviting me to be on this podcast. And yes, I have very fond memories of that day, my investiture in early March. The very next week after the investiture, the, the governor issued a declaration of the state of emergency and, and shutdowns across the state began and stay-at-home orders. And, you know, out of the blue, you know, we had to transition to working at home. I have three kids. Uh, they had to transition to learning at home. And so it was an adjustment. And, um, you know, the first month was a bit rough, <laughs> as it probably was for a lot of people. But, uh, you know, we worked through it. At the court, at the first DCA, because we're an appellate court, um, fortunately, we didn't have to deal with the issues surrounding jury trials and hearing dockets. Um, as a court, we were pretty able to swiftly transition and change to working remotely. Um, so for a couple of months now, the building's been operating with just a basic skeleton crew in the clerk's office and the marshal's office. And, you know, I typically go in one or two days a week to get certain things done. Um, but for the most part, we're all working remotely. Well, you um, clerked at the, the first DCA. Um, and so I'm sure you had a dream of, of what it would be like when you first started that. And I'm sure the COVID experience probably um, changed that a bit. Yes, yes, in, in very drastic ways. Um, you know, I hope to have my first year on the court and, and just get adjusted and, and be firing on all cylinders. And then um, the shutdown happened. And through it all, the, the thing that I hate the most um, is that my law clerks, my first class of law clerks, aren't having the traditional law clerk experience. You know, having clerked at the court, and I know you've clerked at the court, and you know how meaningful it can be to have that one-on-one -on -one interaction with a judge every day working on cases, and I hate that. My law clerks don't get that. But once or twice a week, we Zoom together as a suite. We talk through any challenging or tricky cases, and, and it's, it's working out. Yeah, we could have a whole podcast on Zooming, but we, but we won't. <laughs> Let's get to why we're really here. Um, so I want to know about your history and how your journey to becoming a judge evolved. Um, where did you grow up? Well, I was born here, Tallahassee, raised here. Um, when I graduated from high school, I ended up going down to Gainesville and attended the University of Florida for my undergrad degree. I um, majored in classical studies, 
earned my BA. And when I was down there, I happened to get married to my husband, Daniel. We had met years ago in high school, actually, um, but we didn't date in high school. We started dating when we were both down at the University of Florida, and the year we got married, it was right before he started law school, and it was right before I started my last year um, of undergraduate studies. Did you always want to be an, an attorney or a lawyer? No. It never was on my radar as a child growing up. Um, no lawyers in my family. Um, I had no exposure to the legal profession. And so really going to undergrad at UF, um, my husband was going to law school. I was working at the University of Florida to financially support us as he was going through law school. And, um, you know, I was trying to figure out, do I want to go back and get a master's degree? Do I want to continue working at UF? Um, and by chance, I happened to tag along with him on a trip up to Washington, D.C., and I happened to be in the audience and heard a speech by then Justice Antonin Scalia, and, you know, he talked about the role of a judge and um, the legal profession in our country, and it was just a very thought-provoking speech. And it just stuck with me over the next few weeks, and I just kept coming back to, gosh, I really want to learn more about what he was talking about. And within a few weeks, I had registered for the LSAT, applied to law school, and within less than a year, I was starting at FSU. Well, how is it being married to an attorney and and being a few years behind him, but um, having a two-attorney household? It can be challenging at times. You know, the elite, the legal profession is demanding, um, but there is one overriding benefit, and that is that we can support each other, and we understand um, the demands of each other's jobs. Um, you know, when we were both practicing attorneys, and I had a busy schedule, um, he had a busy schedule, we just knew what each other was going through, and so we could really support each other through those times and, and make it work. I'm not married to an attorney, but it seems like you could hone your skills pretty well, uh, either debating or practicing or arguments with your husband. Do you guys do that? Yeah, there have been points in time, but these days, I mainly, you know, am honing my skills with my children. They like to argue. (laughs) Um, So I've been married 18 years now. We're an old married couple, and so we know when to agree to disagree, but, um, you know, the fun fights in my household are are with the kids when they, you know, want to argue a point to death. Well, um, you entered law school, and then you went to clerk at the first DCA, and then you took a break, and I'd like to talk about that. Um, What what factors went into your decision to um, just stop practicing law? Yeah, well, first and foremost, I think it's important to note, um, you know, I was very fortunate that I could make a decision. I had choices and I had options, Um, but basically I was a little over a year into my clerkship. I had a two-year commitment with Judge Thomas, and uh, I found out I was pregnant with our first child, and, um, you know, I had a decision to make, and fortunately um, we had the resources and and the opportunity that I could take a break from the legal profession and stay home and 
raise our young children, and um, it wasn't always easy, um, but it was worth it. And how long was your break? It was a little over two years, and in that time I had another child, so a little over two years, an opportunity came up at the Florida Solicitor General's office, and um, you know, I, when I first heard about it, I knew what an amazing opportunity it was, but I didn't think about it for myself. I thought, oh, do I have any friends who might want to apply? This is a great opportunity, and I told some friends about it, and I just kept talking about um, how awesome it was, and finally my husband one night after hearing me for several weeks turned and said, you know, why don't you just apply? It's kind of your dream job. And a light bulb went off and um, that made all the difference in the world. Well, practicing for uh, the Solicitor General, you were given the opportunity, which many attorneys don't get, but very few women get, to argue in front of the Florida Supreme Court um, and federal, uh, the 11th Circuit, and go to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, can you share what that experience was like and how those opportunities arose for you? Yeah, so just to um, set the stage, the Solicitor General's office was created in 1999 um, within the Attorney General's office to be a specialized unit that would handle appeals in significant high-profile challenging cases. And it, it's kind of this wonderful unit where you can do the pure practice of law and and do appellate work and that was the big attraction to me. I knew going in from day one I would be writing my own briefs, I would have the opportunity to do arguments and my first oral argument um, was about six months after I started there. Um, I was terrified, I had never done an argument before but I prepared like crazy, and uh, Judge Wolf was on the panel, um, and it was amazing. And throughout my time there, I had so many amazing opportunities to argue um, that I never would have had the opportunity to handle if I had gone the traditional path of going through a private firm and starting out as an associate. Do you think that being a female attorney helped you or hindered you? Did you ever have any experiences where you felt you weren't being treated equally in the courtroom? I'm fortunate in that I never encountered too many instances where I felt um, I was being treated differently as a female. The, the one occasion that stands out, it, it just happened out of the blue and I wasn't expecting it. And it happened to me when I had an oral argument and I just happened to be very visibly pregnant with my third child. And... To set the stage, um, the argument date had been set, and my mother at the time was going through some medical issues, and she ended up having to have significant surgery, and the surgery was scheduled for the same day as the argument, so I had to reach out to opposing counsel and see if he would agree to move the date, and he didn't agree, um, so I had to file a motion with the court, and of course they moved the date to an alternate date, so I was still able to be with my mother and do the argument. Um, but right after the argument, you know, we were, I was chatting with opposing counsel and, and making polite small talk, which is what you do. It's important to be civil. And out of the blue, he, you know, mentioned, oh, I see you're expecting. Um, were you the attorney that had asked to move the argument date because you were pregnant? And I explained, no. Um, 
my mother had to have surgery and that's why I needed to move it. And he just made this comment that, well, that must have been another pregnant attorney. I can't keep you all straight. And I didn't know how to respond to that. It just kind of came out of the blue. And whether he intended it or not, that comment put me and all pregnant women in a box. Um, and it said to me that he viewed us as, you know, asking for delays and continuances based on our pregnancy, and we were just all the same. And, um, you know, I didn't know how to respond to that, but it just reinforces the importance of being civil and um, mindful of what you say to others. Well, now that there are no... Did you have a problem getting a continuance from, from the court at Absolutely the time? Absolutely not. Um, no. I worked in private practice, and I also worked in the public sector, and I found that public service not only was more rewarding, maybe not financially, but but uh, but that it definitely was more rewarding as far as getting experience and uh, just feeling better about the work I did. What, what are your feelings about that? I know you practiced at a big firm, and you also were at the SG's office. Oh, absolutely. Um, my public service at the SG's office and, you know, in my clerkship at the first um, were just invaluable experiences. And... Um, you know, I certainly had opportunities and experiences that I wouldn't have in the private sector as a young attorney. Um, but what I loved were the people that I worked with, um, other dedicated public servants who I just learned so much from because they had spent their careers as public servants and were so experienced and so knowledgeable and so willing to be mentors for me. And um, hands down, that was my favorite thing about working at the SG's office. Now, we've talked about, um, you know, being pregnant is uniquely female, <laughs> and only female attorneys and judges experience it. But I know that you, um, from speaking to you before, you were concerned about how the decision to take a break and take care of your, to have kids and, and take care of your family um, would affect your career, and uh, especially when you went through the J&C process. Did you feel that it was detrimental, or how did you deal with that? You know, thinking back to when I had to go in and, and tell my bosses um, that I was expecting, you know, it was scary to go in because you don't know how they're going to respond. Um, fortunately, in my case, it, it worked out. Um, but, you know, years later, when I was preparing my application to apply to be on the court, you know, one of my self-perceived challenges was the time that I had taken a break from the legal profession, and, you know, I was worried about it, that they were going to say, well, you took this time away, and um, I was just really concerned about that gap in legal employment, and so I was talking to um, someone that I respect a lot. She had been a very successful attorney at a, a big D.C. law firm, and when she had kids years ago, she decided to to just stay home with the kids full time and, and stopped being an attorney. Um, and I was asking for her, her for advice and, and she gave me the best possible advice. She said, Rachel, there's an obvious gap in your resume, so you should expect questions about it. However, you shouldn't be defensive about it. You shouldn't be apologetic because you took time off to raise kids and that's important. So just answer the question and move on and don't dwell on it. And just hearing her say that was such a relief because it 
helped me acknowledge that I didn't have to apologize for the very personal choice that I had made to take time away from work. And um, it really just helped me going into the JNC interview, and it ended up not being an issue. I didn't get any questions about it. Um, the questions really focused about, you know, the relevant things on my resume, um, my experience and qualifications. So, Do you think that, um, I know a lot of attorneys, uh, female attorneys and minority attorneys have their biggest obstacle is their self-doubt, um, and they feel, you know, they have an imposter syndrome. They feel like they don't belong um, either on the bench or, or practicing law, but do you feel that that, that was that's something uniquely for for female attorneys? I think yes, we wrestle with I wrestle with it very frequently. I am my own worst critic. Um, you know, I am never happy with what I've written or what I've done. I, I'm always thinking, gosh, I could do better. Um, but knowing that. I know to not be so hard on myself and to cut myself some slack. Um, one of the things when I was preparing my application that was helpful was I sent a draft of my application out to my references, my former bosses and, and colleagues that I respect a lot. And one of my former bosses, um, when he called to give me feedback, he kind of called me out on one of my answers in my significant cases, you have to dis describe the six most significant cases and what role you played in um, that case. And he, he just called me out and said, Rachel, you aren't accurately describing what you did. You played such an integral role in this case and the strategy and the briefing and everything. And, and your answer just makes it like, oh, it was a team effort and everyone contributed. He's like, no, you played a big role. You need to acknowledge that. And hearing that um, was very helpful because it allowed me to kind of overcome that self-doubt and imposter syndrome and acknowledge, yeah, I did do a lot on that case, and I need to claim that. So, Well, now that you are on the bench, do you have similar advice for people who want to go through the, to, through the process of either becoming an elected judge or going through uh, the JNC process to be appointed? Gosh, I have so much advice. <laughs> uh, having gone through the process, yes, I have a lot of thoughts and a lot of advice, but I think my big overall advice would be, um, you know, keep a healthy perspective about the process. Um, Let me break it down. Um, what would you advise someone who was interested in becoming a judge What before they even fill out the application? What factors should they be thinking about? If you have any inkling that you may want to, at some point, apply to be a judge in the next few years, go today and download the application and just look at what kinds of questions it asks. And that can kind of walk you through um, the things that the JNC and the governor's legal office and the governor may be looking for when they're considering someone for nomination and appointment. And think about your qualifications and your career up to this point and think about how it would translate onto the paper application. Um, are there any weak areas that you maybe need to work on? Um, do you need more courtroom experience? Do you need um, more kind of community service or pro bono? Are there any gaps that you could work on um, before you actually apply um, to have the strongest possible resume? And then once you're in the process, um, 
Well, how did you prepare for, you know, you made the, the short list, you get interviewed by the JNC. How did you prepare for those interviews and, and conversations? I prepared just like it, I was going into an appellate oral argument. Um, you know, I thought about every potential question that may ca- come up. I had just a long list of questions, and I would type out my responses and answers and just kept going through and, and thinking about how to best represent myself to the JNC and the experience and the qualifications that I had. And, you know, overall, it's it can be a quick process and, and a long, drawn-out process. As you get to each stage, it's like, okay, I'm at the next stage. Now I have to wait for whatever's next. My overall advice is to, to keep a healthy perspective because it, it can be a draining process, but just keep a healthy perspective and going in, know that statistically, um, you know, you might not get out of the JNC, you might not get appointed, and that's okay. But having put yourself out there and applied and gone through the process, it's such a valuable experience. You learn so much about yourself, and it's worth it. And as you said, the majority of people don't make it through that process. If Would you suggest that people try new tactics if they reapply or... Or do you encourage people to, to reapply at all? Absolutely. If you think you are qualified and you want to be a judge and you think you would be a good judge, then keep applying. Um, you know, don't give up. I think one helpful thing, if you don't make it out of the JNC, then I would recommend that you consider reaching out to the JNC members after the process has ended and, and just say, hey, would you mind grabbing coffee with me and, and, and giving me some feedback on my application and my interview? I would really appreciate it. And, you know, JNC members, I think, are always willing to give that feedback. Um, so, you know, seek that feedback out um, and apply it next time that you're going through the process. It can be really helpful. I think you you hit on this before when you were talking about uh, your your references calling you out, but um, I find that that perhaps attorneys in general are so uh, trained to advocate for others um, and, and female attorneys, male attorneys, all attorneys, but um, we find it difficult uh, advocating for ourselves. What would you? What advice would you give to? Uh, people going through the JNC process on how they can advocate for themselves. Well, I think that's what's so helpful about the process in filling out the application and talking to your references who are people who've known you through your career. Um, you learn more about yourself and you kind of analyze your career and you put it into paper form and then you go in and have an interview and just going through that process, it's so beneficial because it forces you to become the advocate for yourself. And, you know, my nature is, you know, to always give credit to everyone else. And I couldn't do that when I was applying to be a judge. I had to go in as if it was the appellate argument of my lifetime and I was the client. And, gosh, that was a really helpful process for me. Well, you've given us lots of good advice um, on the process. Um, Do you have any advice that for attorneys that are in your courtroom, male or female, on on how to make oral argument, on how to act professionally uh, with other attorneys? Absolutely. I think my my biggest piece of advice for attorneys coming into an appellate courtroom, 
um, to argue is know your audience. You know, understand that we're in appellate court and we have a very different function and role from trial courts. And statistically, only about 4 to 5% of the cases at the first DCA actually ever get set for oral argument. So in a vast majority of cases, those cases are going to be decided on the basis of your written arguments in your briefs. So know the importance of briefing a case. Um, know the importance of standards of review. Um, you know, we're bound by them. And if it's an abuse of discretion standard of review for a certain issue, um, you know, that's very deferential to the trial judge. And as much as we may disagree with how the trial judge exercised his discretion, we can't overturn it unless it meets that abuse of discretion um, standard. So just be familiar with those concepts, and, and that can be incredibly helpful. I always found that it was um, helpful to get a group of attorneys before a trial or before oral argument to do a trial run, um, a moot court. Um, what it, do you have any hints about that? Yes. One of the most helpful tools that an attorney um, has in preparing for an argument is to do a moot court. And at the Solicitor General's office, before every argument um, in our office, we would do at least one or two moots for every attorney before they had an argument. And um, they weren't always pretty, um, and, and the, the whole point was that they wouldn't be pretty. You know, we were throwing the hardest questions nonstop at, at one of our colleagues, you know, intentionally trying to, to push them and press them. And the whole point of that is that the role of an appellate court and an argument, we aren't there just to listen to your wonderful argument. We're there to find the holes in your argument and to poke at them and explore the weaknesses of your argument. And the moot court um, before an argument helps you as an attorney prepare for that, um, you know, uncomfortable poking at the weaknesses that, that's going to happen. And so at the SG's office, we had this guiding principle that if one of our colleagues that we had mooted went out to an oral argument and they were asked a question that they weren't prepared for, then we collectively as an office had failed in our duty to help prepare that colleague. And so we took it very seriously. Um, and I just really recommend if you've never had a moot court session to prepare for an argument, try it and, and you will see benefits from it. The bar uh, this year is, and in the past, has, um, especially now during COVID, um, promoting wellness, um, you know, dealing with stress. What do you do to deal with all of the things going on in your children and your family and, you know, being, being an appellate judge? What, what kind of activities or de-stressors do you have? Yeah, so a, a lot of my fun time is spending time with my family. I love traveling with them. Of course, we haven't been able to travel much lately. Um, but I can share that, you know, one of the more during one of the more stressful and demanding times of my career, when I had a lot going on at work, um, you know, I needed an outlet. And so I'm very unathletic, but I, out of the blue, decided to sign up for a half marathon. And I just needed to set a goal and work towards that goal. And, and I figured that would kind of help me um, juggle kind of all the demands and, and help me kind of focus on keeping things in balance. And I signed up, 
I printed out a training schedule. I did my best to stick to it. And, you know, months later, I crossed the finish line, and I just thought, oh, my gosh, I did it. And looking back, I realized how much that helped me cope with some of the the stress and demand of what was going on at work. It helped me focus on things outside of work and kind of brought things more in balance. So, um, you know, if you're dealing with some things and, and need something else to focus on, you know, look for opportunities to take care of your wellness and challenge yourself. Do you have any words of wisdom for promoting professionalism and civility in our profession? Certainly. Um, I think one of the helpful principles that um, I think of a lot whenever I'm dealing with a challenging situation um, is that as you go through your legal career from the, the first day you step foot on a law school campus to your last day as an attorney, you know, you're going to encounter a lot of challenging situations. You're going to have demanding bosses. You, you're going you, you're gonna to have annoying colleagues, um, pushy clients. You're going to encounter maybe irritable judges sometimes. Um, Never. <laughs> Never. Through that all, um, one thing that's helpful to keep in mind as you're encountering challenging situations is that you, you don't have control over all of those things. You don't have control over other people. But what you do have control over is how you choose to respond to those people. And you can make a very conscious choice to treat everyone with respect and civility, um, no matter how you know, challenging the situation may be, um, that can really help you in your career and keep you focused on being civil towards others. Judge Nordby, thank you for your time and advice today. Stay safe and healthy. Thank you. And that concludes our episode featuring Judge Rachel Nordby. I'd like to give a shout out to Tabitha Gunot, the committee's summer intern, for her research suggestions and ideas in helping us with this podcast. I'd like to also thank Rebecca Bandy and Katie Young, the directors and assistant director at the Henry Latimer Center for Professionalism, for keeping us on track and getting the resources to do this podcast. And to Clay Shaw, the Florida Bar's creative support manager and sound editor extraordinaire. Thank you very much. Thank you.